Hello and good evening to everyone and uh, welcome to another episode of Everyday Black History. Um, uh, happy Monday everybody and uh, hopefully you had a good start to your week. If you, watched, if you watched the football game, the Super Bowl yesterday, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you didn't, I hope you had a good weekend. First off, to start this episode, I just want to um, give a disclaimer. On the last episode, on February 1st, we um, honored the, uh, 60, the 60th anniversary of the Greensboro sit-ins. And um, in the episode, I kept saying the 50th anniversary. So I just wanted to uh, clarify that. You know, that was my that was my mistake. I said the right year, 1960, February 1st, 1960. But I kept saying 50 year anniversary, 50 year anniversary. So just wanted to uh, correct that mistake. Um, I know people listening to it probably was like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> but um, but at least I got the date right, February 1st, 1960. But it was the 60th um, anniversary that we were commemorating about the Greensboro sit-in. But today on February 3rd, this Monday, we are, um, and throughout this whole month, you know, we just going to be highlighting, you know, just, you know, historical things in black history as we always do on Everyday Black History. And today we wanted to um, um, highlight um, three men who were architects. And the reason why, you know, I picked these three men is because there there, there aren't a lot of um, architects that are black. I'm not saying that there aren't any, of course. We are pretty much in every field. There's at least one or two of us in every field. But, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you don't really see a lot of well-known black architects, you know, black American architects, rather. You know, and and, uh, so I just kind of wanted to to highlight, you know, these three men because they actually built, you know, landmarks, you know, buildings that are considered landmarks today. And a lot of people, you know, myself included, didn't even know that these men, that these men built these buildings. You know that they were they were behind the design of these buildings, and these men had their own practices, architectural firms that were in existence in you know during the 20th century. So we just wanted to highlight you know these men on the uh, on the show today, and also you know that can be a career path that you know more young black men and women can get into because you know there's not a lot of black men, and there's definitely not a lot of black women, if any that are architects and I'm and I'm sure there are some like I said I'd have to really look and do the research to see if there are any currently but uh, we just wanted to highlight these three men as a way to just kind of give a shout out to their accomplishments and just to talk about you know the uh, the lack of you know black people who are in this career path that can possibly look at this as something that uh, can be a career path for them so the first person we're going to highlight is a man by the name of Vertner Woodson Tandy and Vertner Woodson Tandy was born May 17, 1885, and he was an architect. Now, the thing about him is that he was one of the seven founders of one of the oldest African-American fraternities that was founded at Cornell University in 1906, the Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity. And the Alphas, as they are known, you know, have a lot of well-known, you know, people who, you know, were part of the fraternity, Martin Luther King being one of them. You know, I believe Spike Lee is an alpha. I know Keenan Ivy Waynes is an alpha. There are a lot of famous and well-known people, both in the entertainment as well as in the business world, the medical field, and all fields that are part of the uh, Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity. And Vertner Woods and Tandy is one of the seven founders who were commonly referred to as the Seven Jewels that started it at um, Cornell University Ivy League School in 1906. Now, the thing about him is that he was the first... Uh, 
black American who was registered as an architect in New York State. And um, as far as, you know, his contributions to the uh, to the Alphas, he was the first treasurer of the Alpha chapter. He designed the fraternity pin and he has the distinguishing he has the distinguished uh, honor of being one of the founders of the fraternity. Um, and the fraternity became incorporated, you know, under his auspices. Now, as mentioned, he was born May 17th, 1885 in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, he attended Tuskegee Institute, where he uh, studied architectural drawing. And um, after attending Tuskegee, he went to Cornell University, where he graduated in 1907 with a degree in architecture. And as we as we mentioned before, he later became the state of New York's first registered black architect. And he had his offices on Broadway in New York City, which which, you know, is an accomplishment, especially during the early 1900s for him to have his own architectural firm on Broadway in New York City. Now, his most famous commission, uh, he actually built the uh, home of Madam C.J. Walker. At the time when, when it was built, it was uh, it cost $250,000 to uh, build and design that mansion. Um, it's called the Villa Luaro. And uh, he was the man who was behind that. It's located in Irvington on the Hudson in New York. And now that home, that place is now a registered landmark. But I always like the fact that Madam C.J. Walker... You know, could have gotten any architect to design her home, but she got the first registered black man to do it, you know, keeping it in the community. Now, among his other works, uh, he uh, designed the Ivy Delft Apartments and the St. Philip's Episcopal Church at uh, 204th West, West 134th Street in Harlem. Uh, and that was designed through his firm, Tandy and Foster. And uh, we're going to get, you know, into, you know, Tandy and Foster because his partner was also another black architect. Now, the Ivy, uh, the Ivy Delft apartments were designed in 1948, and uh, it, w- it was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 2005. Um, he also holds the distinction of being the first African-American to pass the military commissioning examination and was, co- and commissioned, the f- and was commissioned first lieutenant in the 15th Infantry of the New York State National Guard. Now... Uh, you can find out more information on him. There is more information on him and some of his other accomplishments. Um, but he died of pneumonia on November 7th, 1949, at the age of 64 in Manhattan. But um, as mentioned, him being distinguished as the first registered black architect, you know, holds a lot of weight, you know, because as we mentioned, architecture is not a career that you really see as many black people in it. And he was the first one. Um, now, his firm, uh, Tandy and Foster, um, it was active from 1908 to 1914 in New York and New Jersey. Uh, as we mentioned, it was based in New York. That was his office on Broadway. And uh, it was founded in 1908 by him and by his partner, George Washington Foster. Now, George Washington Foster was born in 1866, and uh, he was among the first a black American architect that was licensed by the state of New Jersey in 1908 and later in New York in 1916. Um, he uh, was born in Newark, Newark in uh, 1866, and he attended Cooper Union and uh, worked in the office of Henry Hardenberg from 1888 to 1889, who uh, 
designed uh, New York City landmarks as the Dakota Apartment Building, which is where uh, John Lennon was shot, the Dakota, the Plaza Hotel, and the first Waldorf Astoria um, that was on that's on the present site uh, of the Empire State Building. So, you know, who would have known that George Washington Foster, a black man, uh, helped, contributed to, you know, building these landmark buildings. All these buildings are well known. The Dakota Plaza and the Waldorf Astoria are all well-known buildings. And the fact that he worked for the company, worked for the man, and contributed to the uh, designs of these buildings is something that definitely should uh, be noted. Uh, as mentioned, you know, he worked... You know, during the time he worked for him, he worked uh, extensively on the Waldorf Hotel, which is, uh, you know, one of the top hotels and uh, well-known hotels in New York City. The o- oldest hotels, very expensive, you know, for the for the rich folks. And uh, George Washington Foster, you know, worked extensively on that while he was working for Henry Harding Pearl. Um, he also worked on the Flatiron Building, which was designed by Chicago-based firm D.H. Burnham. Uh, why he why he uh, was partnered with uh, um, uh, Vertner Vertner Woods and Tandy, they together, as we mentioned, worked on the St. Philip's Episcopal Church. And uh, in 1915, he was licensed to practice in New York and maintain his own office. After him and Vertner split, he maintained his own office until his death. He died in 1923 in a house that he designed in uh, Bergen County, Park Ridge, New Jersey. But uh, he was the uh, first black American to be licensed in the state of New Jersey, just as Vertner was the first to be licensed in the state of New York. But as mentioned, you know, he uh, contributed to landmark buildings um, and, you know, a lot a lot of his contributions aren't, you know, really well known, you know, but, you know, because as mentioned, a lot of people don't really know too much about you know, the black architects that, um, you know, that, that work in the field. Now, the final man who we, uh, we're going to talk about today, uh, is a man by the name of William Sidney Pittman. And William Sidney Pittman, um, was also an architect who designed several notable buildings. Um, he designed the Zion Baptist Church, uh, in um, the near the nearby Deanwood Chess House in uh, Washington D.C., he was also the son-in-law of Booker T. Washington. Now he was born April twenty-first, eighteen seventy-five, and he was born in Montgomery, Alabama. His uh, mother was an ex-slave, and his dad was a prominent white man of the city. Now, at the age of seventeen, he attended Pitt, uh, sorry Tuskegee Institute, and he completed programs in woodwork and architectural mechanical drawing in 1897 so that gave him you know multiple skills he can do carpentry as well as you know the mechanical drawing the design part of architecture he was awarded a scholarship to attend Drexel University in Philadelphia where which was an all-white school and he completed the five-year uh, architecture and mechanical drawing program in only three years where he graduated in the year 1900 and after graduating, you know, and I'm sure he had his own uh, uh, dealings there because he was the only black, you know, even even though he was half black, he was the only, you know, you know, person of color there in that school since it was an all white school. 
So you know you can imagine what kind of things he had to deal with. Even if he was lighter skinned, our features are undeniable, you know? So I'm sure he he had some interesting experience. And when I say interesting, I don't mean that in a good way. Interesting experience at Drexel Institute, but the fact that he was able to complete a five-year program in just three years. Um, and then instead of staying there, he returned right back to Tuskegee where uh, he taught for the next five years. So he took what he learned, the education that he learned, and was able to pay it forward to, you know, young black men and women and to who were his students. Now he designed a number of buildings for the Tuskegee Institute, including the uh, Carlos P. Huntington Memorial Building. Um, uh, he then moved to DC and he developed his own successful architecture firm where he received you know, many important commissions. While he was in DC, one of the um, things, he, one of the many things he designed was the uh, building that Industrial Bank uh, ran out of. Uh, Industrial Bank is one of the banks that we covered recently on Everyday Black History, one of the black owned banks that's still in existence today and that's still continue, continuing to grow. But the original uh, man who started Industrial Bank um, started in a building that was designed by uh, William Pittman. He also developed the Fairmont Heights housing development for blacks in the suburbs of Maryland. And as we mentioned before, he was the son-in-law of Booker T. Washington. He married his daughter, he married Booker T.'s daughter, Portia Washington in 1907. Um, And the family home that Pittman designed in Fairmont Heights is now a notable landmark. Now, Booker T. Washington was the head of the Tuskegee Institute, so uh, you know, while he was working at Tuskegee, that's how he, you know, got the connection there and, you know, met Portia and married her. And uh, he won several, he, he won a federal commission for the Negro Building at the Tercentennial Exposition at Jamestown, Virginia in 1907 as well. And he designed the Colored Carnegie Library of Houston, which was built in 1913. And it was the only library that was a- available to African-Americans of that city. So no doubt that had to be a feeling of pride to de- to design a place where where the only place where black Americans were able to go and read and get, you know, further, you know, education. You know, libraries are a place where you can find books and where you can be educated on different things. So no doubt that was a point of pride for William Pittman. Now he established a name for himself in uh, DC and in Tuskegee. Um, but after doing that, you know, he made his way to Texas in 1913 after building the Color Carnegie Library of Houston. Um, he decided to stay there and he wanted to stay there because he wanted to escape the influence of, you know, his famous father-in-law. He didn't want to live in his shadow anymore. So once he was in Texas, he continued, you know, building. He built the uh, Py- Pythian Temple um, and the St. James African Methodist uh, Episcopal Church in Dallas. He built the Allen Chapel AME Church in Fort Worth and the Joshua Chapel AME Church and, and the uh, Wesley Chapel AME Church in Houston. So while he was out in Texas, he was just building churches, you know, building places of worship for, you know, the black, for the black folks there in those city in those towns, rather. Um, in 1928, you know, him and, uh, Portia separated after they raised three children. She returned to teach in Tuskegee, 
and uh, he stayed in Texas and he quit his practice of architecture and just decided to work as a skilled carpenter, taking on jobs, um, commission jobs, just, you know, doing carpentry work since he already had the skill from when he was in the Tuskegee Institute. And for the next, uh, you know, 20 years or so, he published an opinionated and controversial paper, The Brotherhood Eyes, uh, and he was a dissonant voice in the black community that was an alternative to mainstream newspapers such as Dallas Weekly or the Dallas Express. And, you know, when writing in that paper, he uh, he talked about things that he saw as failures among the local preachers and other black leaders and no doubt gained himself many enemies. But he still continued to, you know, speak his mind and speak his truths, uh, despite any consequences that it might have led to. Um, but he died on March 14th, 1958 in Dallas and was buried in the Glen Oak Cemetery. He died at the age of 82, so he lived a long life. And as mentioned, many of the, the, the places that he designed are now cultural landmarks. But I just wanted to say uh, before I conclude the episode that one of the men we talked about, George Washington Foster, he didn't he didn't design, you know, I want to clarify that he didn't design the Plaza Hotel or the Dakota or the Waldorf. He just worked for the men who designed those buildings and contributed to, you know, the the mechanical drawings of those buildings. I just want to clarify that. Because I don't want, you know, people to say like, oh, you, you know, you're telling false truths and giving this man credit or whatever for things he didn't design. But he did contribute to the designs of the Waldorf and while he was working for the man, Henry Hardenborough, who designed those land, New York City landmark buildings. I just wanted to give that clarification. But these men who we talked about, George Washington Foster and Vertner Woodson Tandy and uh, William Pittman, uh, they, you know, as mentioned, they work in a field that's not highly populated by, you know, black Americans. So I just wanted to highlight their accomplishments because they all, uh, they all designed some landmark buildings, you know, buildings today that are, that are actually registered landmarks in the cities that they're in. And so even though, you know, architecture is not something that, you know, you really see a lot of black men and women, you know, doing, the, 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 people the black people who have have contributed a lot to this field and so it is something you know for young you know boys and girls to maybe look into getting into you know we are a naturally creative people so imagine if more young you know young folks young black folks you know look to architecture and use the creativity that they have you know what kind of cool designs can can pop up in many, you know, black cities around the country or around the world even. You know, so we just want to highlight, we just wanted to highlight these three men and their accomplishments in a field that, you know, we aren't, you know, that prevalent in. And, um, yeah, but since it's Black History Month, that's what we're going to be doing, you know. Uh, We're just going to talk about, you know, men and women who accomplish things in these fields like tech and science even though we've always you know talked about women and men and women in tech and science you know it's always good to highlight you know men who from the past and the present who are even even young folks who are going to be the future who are already making marks in these fields that aren't highly uh, you know where we're not highly visible 
So, you know, in this episode, we went to conclude. We talked about, you know, three men who are architects. And I'll look and see if I can, I'll look and find, because I know that there are definitely women architects, black women architects in the field that we can uh, talk about. And, you know, because I want to highlight them as well, you know, and, and talk about their accomplishments as well. So that concludes this episode of Everyday Black History. Uh, we will definitely be coming at you again uh, this week, if not tomorrow, definitely Wednesday with another episode in which we'll be highlighting, you know, um, you know, our history. All right. So, uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your evening and stay tuned for the next episode.